Welcome to the Prime Talk with your hosts, Dan and James. Welcome to Grog Talk. I'm James. I'm Dan. Where are we from today, Dan? We are from Denhouse Pub and Grub. Denhouse Pub and Grub. What's what's so exciting about this place? There's a lot of jostling going on in here. That's right. Uh, a lot of uh, not tomfoolery activity. We think it's tomfoolery. It's, bo- it's boisterous. Is that probably the right word? It's boisterous. Yep. And, and it's from our favorite place. And and why are we here? Well, we're here because Denhouse Pub and Grub uh, is from. The area of the slave lords. Ah, exactly. written by who? Who wrote that? Allen with an E, Hammock with, with an A-A. A. With A A, right? All That's A's. Right. Uh, and uh, obviously the first one would be an A, but the last one's an A too. Right. So uh, he's uh, he's scheduled to be our guest today. That's right. And I'm super pumped about it. Yes. Um, and good morning, good afternoon, good evening to our to the entire Grog Empire spanning the globe as we speak. Uh, we I'm going to let Dan introduce our guest and let him uh, uh, t- talk to a little bit about uh, what he has done with regards to AD&D, which may take a little bit. All right, and he might be a little figure in terms of this little box here, but right. he's a big figure in the world of AD&D, and it's our pleasure to have. Alan Hammock on. Alan, thank you so much for appearing on Grog Talk. My pleasure. Greetings, gamers and seekers of wisdom. <laughs> and, and the reason why we've reached out to Alan, not only because we would reach out to Alan anyway, but in particular because we're celebrating 1980 here on Grog Talk. And in 1980, one of the great modules of all time was, of course, published uh, to the general public. I know We'll talk about that. It came out in 79, in very limited edition, but the general public, of course, uh, C2, the ghost tower of Inverness. Yep. Uh, and, of course, maybe, I don't know if we'll have to have him back next year to talk about <laughs> assault of the area slave wars. We celebrate 1981. Uh, but so, um, uh, Alan, th- thank you so much. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, uh, take us back to maybe the mid-70s. Uh, apparently you, like many of us, you're, the gateway was Avalon Hill War Games, I believe. Is that correct? Right. Um, at a uh, at the hobby store where I went to buy my model rockets, I I saw these uh, games show up one day, and there was a game called Blitzkrieg, mm-hmm. and uh, I I went well. That sounds interesting. I had, I had played chess, but was looking for something more uh, concrete, less abstract. And I had played Risk and was looking for something less dicey. Um, and I uh, wanted something that rewarded strategy as, as well as, as dice rolling and thought I'd take a chance on this. And I got the Blitzkrieg game and was uh, overwhelmed by the rules and the complexity, but thought this would be great and talked my little brother into playing a game with me. And to the best of my knowledge, he's never played a board game since. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, did you have to play a lot of solitaire games, apparently? Blitzkrieg was, uh, was not a, an easy game, and nor was it the best introduction to, to gaming. But uh, as a matter of fact, there was a, um, a magazine Avalon Hill published called The General, and on the back page they had Opponents Wanted ads. And I saw another one in Birmingham, Alabama, where I lived, and contacted him and 
he knew uh, other people, and so we actually started getting uh, opponents, and there was a little club called the Sparta International Competition League, and uh, it was a nationwide uh, club, and there was a Birmingham chapter. Uh, there were a couple of clubs like that at the time. The uh, IFW was the one that Gary Gygax was a member of, uh, primarily Midwestern, but but national, and uh, these fortured, these fostered competition games where we would uh, either play by mail, which was uh, a long and tedious process of setting up and recording grid coordinates and, and stuff, um, or uh, actually go to other towns for, for tournaments and competitions. And uh, it was a lot of fun. But uh, that, that group introduced me to uh, miniatures gaming. Uh, so board gaming became the gateway to miniatures gaming. We played a miniatures game called Chainmail that had a little thing at the end called a fantasy supplement. And all of a sudden, instead of just my knights and, and warriors, there were uh, orcs and wizards and Nazgul, oh my. And I went, oh, this is fun. <laughs> and, and at that time, you must have been, I assume you were reading fantasy novels at that point, because if you found that interesting, I assume you had some sort of interest already at the time in right. fantasy literature. Right. I had, I had discovered science fiction well before that, but had just gotten into fantasy uh, in, uh, in high school. My, uh, a, a girlfriend uh, said uh, she had read something that she didn't really uh, care for, but thought it might be up my alley and, and gave me a copy of Board uh, of the Rings. And I went, Ooh, yes. So yes, I had read, I had read Lord of the Rings and Hobbit and, and some uh, uh, Jack Vance and Robert E. Howard by that time. Yeah. Now we have an important question for you because James and I have a disagreement. Could you please tell us what your favorite book is of the Lord of the Rings? If you have one, maybe you like them all equally. Um, I want to say The Return of the King, and the primary reason it may not be what you think it is, I loved the appendices because that showed me that there was a whole world of, of other adventures out there other than these three stories. Okay, fair. Yes, that, there's a lot. Those are... But it wasn't the Fellowship of the Ring. It was not. That's our disagreement. I'm a, I like Fellowship the best. He thinks it's... The Two Towers is by far. Okay, but this is about him. So we'll, <laughs> right. This is well, not about him. It's not about it's us. Not about, it's not about us. It's about well, him. It's about him. Okay. So um, you did the Chainmail Supplement, all right? So you did the Fantasy Supplement to Chainmail. Right. And then, and then tell us how you first learned about Dungeons & Dragons. Well, um... One of the, the members of our group uh, did travel to more of the conventions than, than the rest of us did. And at some convention, he says he saw this, this guy playtesting a group off of uh, mimeograph uh, pages of an of a interesting game. And so he says that he saw Gary you know, testing D&D at some Midwestern uh, a group and said, this is a really fun game. You guys need to watch for it when it comes out. And this was probably 1974 or so, just before wow. the publication. Uh, and so in 1975, um, uh, we 
jumped on it when our hobby shop finally got the the boxes uh, out and started playing that uh, in '75. Were were you showing up to the hobby shop continually asking them about this, and and they had no idea, and and did you have to try to tell them to find it? Because I, I don't know how easy it was to find in 1975. It, it wasn't easy at all. They. Uh, uh, they primarily sold bicycles. Getting them to <laughs> getting them to order the pockets that I wanted was hard enough, and then much less trying to actually ask for specific games in the in the game the small small game section that they had. Uh, but eventually, they they did, and uh, you know this was this was really before you could. Now, order things direct. The the consu- direct consumer market wasn't really developed. Uh, everything had to go through distributors and retailers. At least for those of us that didn't have our own, you know, cars or mobility back then to to shop around. Well, you had a bike from the hobby shop, though. <laughs> right. to get the right I did. It's a long bike ride to there, and although I did it a few times. Um, so, so that would have been the white box, I assume. It was the, it was the white box. We just missed the brown box. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And so, can you tell us a little bit about how you went about learning how to play? Because you know, it was you know, you were a war gamer. A lot of us were war gamers. I grew up on Avalon Hill war games as well. And it, you know, if I don't know if someone hadn't taught me, I wouldn't have known how to play. Did you have to figure out how to play? Yeah, uh, we had one uh, person that was kind of the initial uh, uh, dungeon master. And, uh, uh, yeah, we tried to figure it out, although our miniatures experience helped a lot because if you remember the first three books all talked about movement in inches and, and uh, th- yeah, many historical miniatures gaming type terms. Uh, we, you know, we understood that well enough. Uh, but, um, but yeah, Everything was complex and subject to interpretation. Uh, um, fair number of typos in the in the original books, uh, uh, things like that. So yes, we it was a group effort. Now in our group, we also uh, shared duties, so that when one person became the dungeon master, he wanted to play too. So he would uh, let someone else. Uh, borrow the rule set and create their own world. Uh, I think I was the third dungeon master of our group. So, and do you remember your first game? Uh, I do remember the first game. I, I created a, a wizard and was appalled to find that I only had one spell, and so <laughs> I very cleverly selected shield. <laughs> so I lived. <laughs> <laughs> but wise move. That's right. Wise move. With all those hit points he had. Exactly. Right. And and where were you? Because you have you have a degree in chemistry, I believe, right? And and you were and I know at some point you're going to be getting an advanced degree in chemistry when 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 Gary asked you to join TSR. So where, were you in college at this point, or were you still in high school at this point? We started in high school and continued on through uh, through college. Uh, we. A number of us migrated our group from Birmingham to uh, Tuscaloosa at the University of Alabama. Um, but it's close enough that we would come back on weekends. If there was a game in Birmingham, we'd go there. If, if there was a game in Tuscaloosa, the Birmingham Post would come to us. And so, yeah, continued on through college. Um, yes, my 
degree was chemistry. I was uh, all set for that. We started going to conventions. I, you know, didn't think anything more of it and, and proceeded towards a master's in chemistry and had completed everything except for the master's, except for my final thesis project. When uh, the world kind of changed, uh, I went to uh, a convention at Gen Con and Gary Gygax waved me over and asked when I could start. So, Yeah, and tell, can you tell us a little bit, because apparently you had responded, I believe, to an ad, right? I mean, right, were they... Right. There was a small one ad in Dragon uh, for an editor, and I thought, well, that'll be a lark for, you know, a few months. And so I answered it because I had had some fairly extensive newspaper experiences uh, as an editor and reporter and writer by that time. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I answered it and um, uh, thought nothing of it because it was months and months later at the convention. I mean, they didn't send a, a letter saying, you know, hi, you're on the list of, of people we're considering or anything like that. Uh, to tell you how long ago this was, the, the Gen Con was uh, at University of Wisconsin Parkside, and the scene that I described was when I had first arrived and was hurrying towards a game, Gary was actually in line for food, waiting, waiting. <laughs> so how long ago it was that Gary would be waiting for food, you know? Right. Uh, now, now people just part, right? Sorry, and he no, was, I mean, he wasn't well, jumping the line or anything, yeah. you know, so, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he, and he waved me over and, and, uh, I, so I went, hi, you know, and he said, well, when can you start? And I said, uh, what? And he said, uh, uh, we need you to move up here to uh, start being an editor. Uh, can you do first of the month? And so I, I said, sure, I can do that. And so I had less than three weeks to, uh, pack up everything, change my life and, uh, move to Wisconsin. Wow. Okay, so so that couldn't have been an easy decision. So what was going through your mind? I mean, you're getting a degree, an advanced degree in chemistry at the time. You obviously have an anticipated career path, which is extremely different. Right. You have, you, I assume, I don't know if you have parents that you have to explain this career decision to who perhaps have contributed to your tuition. Right, and he doesn't even have a picture of Gary Gagax to show his parents because, you know, as we yeah. said. How did you know that was, well, and how did you know that was Gary? I mean, it was, none of us knew what Gary looked like back in the day. Oh, well, I, this was not my first convention. It was uh, about the third year that I had gone to conventions. I went to um, uh, Origins 1 and Gen oh, okay. Con 9 uh, previous to, to that. Uh, and I had, done well at both of those the the conventions weren't the huge monsters that that you think of today and so you did actually see people uh at uh at origins my dungeon master for the tournament that that we played in was uh, tim cask and ah. and then uh at uh gen con nine uh the i mean we it was played primarily at the Horticultural Hall. And so um, that's a fairly small venue. So, yeah, we, we, we saw everybody. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, did you have, so, so can you tell us a little bit about the thought process that was going through your mind? Was it a difficult decision? Uh, was it an easy decision well, it was, to take the job? It, it was a, a difficult decision, but in my mind, I thought that I might 
do that for a year. I, I was thinking I would take a year off and then uh, go back to you know real work. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and I got there and was good at it, and people liked what I what I did, and I started making friends. And the, at that point, TSR was growing and booming, and I ended up spending five years up there. So. Did you did you have some explaining to do to people though? So it, I mean, it seems like I don't know. I mean that that that, that might be a tough conversation to have with uh, some my, people. Right? My folks were very understanding uh, about that. Uh, they're very flexible in letting us pursue what what we wanted to. Uh, you know the 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 underlying current was you know no more school. You know, uh, but uh, but I you know I understood that uh, they were. Uh, they were very nice and and supportive of uh, of, of the choices that uh, I made. Now, it wasn't utterly unrelated because during my four years pursuing a, a ACS chemistry degree, that was hard to to help keep my grade point up average. I I, I had taken a lot of English courses because. I went. Oh, give, oh, give me A's to read, you know. Most, so yeah, I went. I went I'll take that. Uh, yes, yeah, so I can read and write and 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 uh, talk in class about books. I can do that. So, uh, so yes, I actually ended up with a minor in English, and uh, that, although I didn't think of it at the time, probably was an influence in how I stood out from the other candidates when they hired me. Okay. Uh, and probably, he, uh, do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I've got uh, two younger brothers and a younger sister. Oh, you are the oldest. Okay. So I, I thought maybe he was the youngest, and they're like, "Man, eh, we've got other children who are going to make us proud." <laughs> you know, right? He, he's the ex. You know, like right. I was, I was the second kid, so they didn't care. Just what you feel so, about Nico? Yeah. Well, Nico's the third. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the production right. goblin. You know, if, as long as he's not in a gang. And you're in a cult. They were okay. That's an easy standard. So, to but me. you're the oldest, so yeah, they did. They did appreciate that. Interesting. Well, Absolutely. Alan, could you uh, could you tell us about your very first day? Because I and you know I've obviously done James Alice jokes about how much research I do on our guests, and um, so I'm I'm really fascinated to learn about your days, of course, at TSR. Um, and, and I had this image of your first day, and, and maybe you could tell us what it was like to walk in. Where was TSR located at the time? What was the building like? And what is it like when you walk in that very first day? Well, at the time, uh, TSR was entirely concentrated in, in one house in the middle of Lake Geneva, a converted house. As you walk in, you're actually in the dungeon hobby shop, which was the, the at the lower level of the house. Uh, you walk towards the back, and there was uh, a room where the accounting uh, people uh, were uh, uh Kevin Bloom and, and uh, Vicky Bloom, and then you would have to go upstairs to pass uh, Gary's office and Brian's office, and then one room, which was kind of a, an artist loft uh, area that was shared by Dave Sutherland, uh, the artist, uh, one other artist, whoever of the contract artists would be coming in at the time, like Dave Trampier, uh, and Mike Carr and Tim Jones and myself, who were the editing staff. Uh, Tim Jones and I actually shared a desk and shared a typewriter. So um, that was what it was like. And we would be uh, 
working on uh, on something and somebody would yell up the stairs, the UPS truck is here, and everybody would have to come down, uh, including artists and, and writers, and unload and load the UPS truck because <laughs> everybody did everything in, in those days. Uh, I am. I've got more. I don't. I don't want to monopolize well, all the questions. Well, my so. my question is: Did they eat peanut butter and Pepsi like they did in Dragon Magazine? Yeah, when Dragon Magazine, they said that was the choice was what Pepsi and peanut butter and jelly. Peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. So what was the was that was there official kitchen commissary food that you all ate since? Uh, uh, well, there were there was no commissary there. Uh, there was, however, a Pizza Hut next door. Uh, ah. And uh, we would. Do that. There was a grocery store not too far away, uh, and buying a sandwich from the deli was was an option. Uh, but but many lunches at the at the Pizza Hut there. Um, oddly enough, not pizza all that often. They they make pretty good sandwiches and salads too. Uh, it's interesting. We were paid um, slightly over minimum wage at the time, but. I got a notification from the state of Wisconsin that that uh, we were actually under the poverty level that they had, they had declared. Uh, we also had a minimum of forty eight hours a week that we had to work, so we were required to work forty eight at least forty eight hours a week, uh, although we were paid overtime for the extra eight hours. So, yeah, I was going to ask: Did you even know how much money you were going to make? Because so Gary says. When can you start? Can you start at the first of the month? You say yes. You even discussed wages? No, no. It, uh, I, I assumed I would be paid whatever they were willing to pay. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, so you land there at TSR. You walk in the door. And at that point in time, so this is 1978, correct? Yes. yes. So at that point in time, the, the first two core books had come out, right? The Monster Manual was out and the Player's Handbook was out. Yeah, the player's handbook had come out uh, at the convention that I attended, that where I was hired at. Yes, right. And so uh, the D the dungeon master's guide is being worked on, um, and it, right. And so so maybe you can talk about some of those very first projects that you were asked to work on as an editor. The very first project I was asked to work on was a board game that that none of you will have heard of called Fourth Dimension. It was an adaptation of a British board game. Um, and it was kind of like chess, but played on a on a circular board that had some areas outside the the main board, and pieces could warp out into these side areas and stay out for one, two, or three turns, and come back in at another place on the board. Uh, what I didn't recognize at the time was that this was based on Doctor Who because I didn't know what Doctor Who was at the time, uh, because there were pieces called Time Lords, and the phrase was called Time Warping. and, and uh, So anyway, it was an interesting variation of chess, um, because you never knew when these pieces that were outside could come in and threaten you know, your strategy. Uh, so... Uh, interesting. Yeah, it was it was interesting. So that was that my that was my first editing project, but it wasn't too long before we were started we were called in to start working on the Dungeon Master's Guide. And what this would consist of would be large photocopies of typed um, uh, the large typed manuscript, 
in those days, uh, photocopying was fairly expensive. Uh, we used carbon paper a lot, but you can't carbon 15 or 20 copies, which is how many that we were having to work with. Because in addition to the uh, few editors that we had at TSR, uh, by that time, uh, Harold Johnson and, and Lauren Schick had joined us as well. Um, the, the copy was sent out to Gary's friends who had been influential, like uh, Lynn Lakofka and such. And so each of us were given a copy to make our own edits on, and we were given one or two or three other manuscripts that had comments from uh, earlier uh, friends of Gary, uh, such as Lynn and uh, uh, the Coons's, uh Terry and Rob Coons, and so on. Okay. And, and so what happened to the fourth dimension game? Because <laughs> I, I was a contractor and I always would work on things. As, and they, then someone would go, eh, you're not working on it now. Now you're working on this other it thing. Was, it was finished. It was published and uh, was a minor success. I suppose maybe they didn't lose money on it. <laughs> uh, in those, uh, again, in those days, uh, the pieces were odd, uh, unique sculpted or molded pieces. And Almost all injection type work was done uh, in Hong Kong uh, back then. Uh, the famous polyhedral dice that we had, the pink and white uh, 20s, were what we called the Hong Kong dice. And if you have any of those dice from those days, they're probably spheres by now instead of right. because they were down and they will spin forever. Which people uh, like. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wanted to ask you, because I, I, I've done some research, and I saw on another interview you had talked about how that you shared, I believe, a space with, with Dave Sutherland. Is that correct? Right. We were in the same room, yeah. He had a, a, a draftsman's table, and uh, Tim Jones and I shared the, a desk. And, and if I recall correctly, you had said that the way it worked is you would have space in the DMG that you needed to fill, and you would say to him, can you draw something, do an illustration to fit the space? Is that correct? Right. Now, uh, at that point, you were in the layout phase, and not just the DMG, any, any product that we did at that time. Um, you would finish your editing, send it to the typesetter, and they would come back with uh, uh, galleys. Uh, typesetting is a very expensive proposition for a publisher, and you would... Uh, try to get everything right at that point. And then we would lay it out and we would find that the carefully calculated number of words we had left an inch and a quarter at the bottom of the page before the next chapter worked. And so, yeah, we would call Dave and say, I need an illustration that's one column by an inch and a quarter. <laughs> and uh, he would come up with something to, to fit it. And so, you know, and so many of those, I think, are now iconic. You know, right. we, we know these drawings, from the, for, particularly from the DMG. Are, are there any in particular? You know, I mean, I look at things like, you know, this had better work, and they've got the, the Mickey Mouse hat on, right? And right. Dave, get the barbarian in the corner, another drink quick. Uh, so do you, I mean, do you remember those specifically, some of those, saying, oh, we need something here, and, and that's... It, 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 did, he have, did the artists have basically liberty to come up with whatever drawing they wanted to? If, if it... We would tell them, you know, what the 
subject we were talking about was at the time. But uh, yeah, if they, and and sometimes they would say that's not enough space to do anything relevant to, to what you're doing. So let's just fill it with a, a cartoon or, or something like that. Uh, but uh, if it was, if it was relatively big and square like that, the, the, like the cartoons, uh, that was probably something that they had, that they had planned. Uh, if it was smaller and stretched across two columns or something like that, that was something that was fit in. Uh, so, uh, I don't really, I mean, I, I loved the funny stuff just like uh, everybody else. I, I date back to the precursor of the dragon was called the strategic review. Uh, and that had, that had one of my favorite cartoons, which, uh, involved the, uh, the wizard that got knocked off the ledge and, and on the way down, he's saying, fly. Fly, damn it! Fly. <laughs> <laughs> Where are those spell components? That's right. Um, Featherfall. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and we've commented on this before on the show, which is the the lack of typographical errors in the core books. I think is extraordinary because the amount of materials, for example, in the DMG. I mean, this is not a short book. I mean, this is. You know, your typical wargaming rule book, as you know, is about, you know, 30 pages, maybe sometimes even shorter. And, and, and if you compare it to something like, say, you know, Judges Guild, which is famous for their typos, the, the lack of typos and the speed at which you guys must have been working, um, I think it, it, it's quite impressive. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, I've, I've always been pretty good with, uh, with typos. Uh, they... They kind of jump off the, the page at me. Uh, Mike Carr was excellent. Tim Jones is, is excellent. And uh, the others that we got in, uh, Harold and, and Lawrence, uh, were were very good as well. So, yeah, we, you know, we were, we were good. And we also, there's a financial incentive. Like I said, the typesetting process uh, at the time is so expensive. When you get a galley, if you, want, if you have to make a challenge in a galley, it's pricey. And yeah, there were some that had to be made. Uh, but there were some points uh, where if uh, somebody had misspelled deity as deity, uh, by that point, you might let it slide. Uh, it just uh, it became a financial calculation at that point. And if I recall correctly, Gary wasn't the greatest speller, was he? I mean, I, I think some of his letters are, are famous for the misspellings, right? Uh, Gary wasn't a great speller. He was uh, he was better than uh, than Jim Ward. Uh, <laughs> really, I, I love Jim, but uh, boy, that lad can misspell. Uh, so uh, you know that was that was part of the fun, though. I mean, for an editor, it's it goes well. You know, if we weren't here, this would uh, look more amateurish. So we like to bring things up to a professional level. Well, it, you know, it was very impressive, and now. Can, can we, when you were editing this, were you also inevitably drawn to the substance and thinking about, well, this rule should be different? I mean, or were you just all business with, it's just about the grammar and the spelling? Oh, no. Uh, that, that's what we call a copy editing, just grammar and spelling. Uh, when, when you say editing in the game industry, normally you mean you have input on rules uh, and, and questions about that as well, if something doesn't fit. 
uh, and we proposed many changes, uh, some of which Gary would approve and some of which he didn't. Um, there came a section uh, where we realized that we needed a short subject on how rules worked in other planes. And Gary, by that point, didn't want to write anything uh, on it. And so uh, I wrote a couple of paragraphs on how spell effects might change in, in other planes. And he, it, everything is subject to his approval and, and rewriting. But yeah, he took that. So yes, we did some significant uh, uh, work there and corrections. And of course, in something that long, work for consistency as well. If you referred to something in passing on page 15, uh, the way you, a fireball, you know, is a bead, then if some, if you refer to it as a softball sized ball of fire later on, you're going to go, that's not what we said before. We need to change one of them to be consistent. Um, that's the kind of work that, a what I call a developmental editor does. And, and the other uh, thing you were asking about, the length of the rules versus the shorter ones and others, the DMG was plowing new ground. Once we got people interested in the, or used to the concept and we had explained things in the Dungeon Master's Guide, the other companies like Judges Guild didn't need to retread that. People who bought Judges Guild knew how to play D&D because they had read the Dungeon Master's Guide or somebody had in, in the group. So they didn't need to go over 150 pages of this is how this would play out, this is how that would play out. And and we did. It was the first time through. Okay. So um, so can we ask you substantive questions about the DMG? And I, 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 don't, I don't know if I want a Dragon's Foot episode That's to right. break pa- down page, here. On page 27, yes. yeah. uh, table 17. He's fallen into uh, our trap. When I asked right. him, so it was just about grammar, right? No, it was not. <laughs> no, I was intimately involved this, with the, under, uh, the overbearing rules. Okay, a, great. Yeah, so we have some questions. Yes, yes. <laughs> you can ask, and I'll, I'll preface it as I do all of these things by saying, as I recall... Uh, it's, it's over 40 years ago, That's right. so, uh, you know, yes, uh, my, my memory may not be perfect, but I'll be glad to take a shot at it. Fair enough, because I got a couple. So I mean, like you have somebody. Really, like, you have a couple on that. And when you have somebody like Alan Hammock uh, on, you got to strike while the iron's hot. I should have told. I should have when I connected with him. I should have said, him. "Be ready." Yeah. You should have warned. I him. should have. I'm okay. sorry. Now, now, I what call. happened to that outline you were going to send me of the questions? That's that's yeah. That's well, <laughs> and the outline would have just said, "Dan has questions." Yeah. I outline, apologize. You would have just wasted your time. You're better off without an outline. Yeah, with I, that's right. So I have a okay. So the one thing that I think is interesting is that, and yeah, this is going to get fairly specific, is that there doesn't seem to be any rules in the DMG about neutral clerics and turning. There is a discussion about evil clerics, and we know that you can befriend the undead, and the good clerics, of course, turn. And there's there's that's led to a lot of controversy about whether neutral clerics do they turn like good clerics, do they turn like evil clerics, and I don't know if if that had ever come up at the time, because that seems to be something that um, uh, the DMD doesn't address specifically. Right. Uh, in, in later editions, this got uh, codified into the cleric, the neutral cleric making a decision whether he wanted to channel healing energy or destructive energy, and that's something he has to make uh, a decision on at the 
at the at the initial stage. Uh, and if you channel healing energy, the neutral in, can turn undead. And if he channels the destructive energy, if he chooses inflict light wounds instead of cause light wounds, he doesn't get to turn undead. Okay. And did you know, was that something, so was... It, that was, it very... was kind of understood uh, in, the, in the rule play, but you're right, it's not specific in there. Okay, yeah, and, I, and that was going to be my next question, is if Gary had a position on that, and, um, you know, and it sounds like that was the way Gary was playing at the time, as you just described? Uh, as I recall, that's the way uh, uh, Gary played. I did not play a cleric in his campaign. I only played in Greyhawk a couple of times. So. Okay, okay. Um, and I also, I wanted to ask you, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll move away from the DMG, because when you came to TSR, you were working on B1, B2, uh, keeping the Borderlands was in the process of being worked. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, B1 was actually in its finishing uh, stages uh, as, as well. Uh, B2 was, was being worked on. There were a lot of exciting things at that time. Okay, okay. And so what do you remember? So w would Gary talk to you about his idea? You know, because B2 in particular is, is such a famous adventure. I mean, I think almost everybody, I know it's basic, it wasn't advanced, but almost everybody has been through B2. And so did you have an opportunity to talk to Gary about B2, what his, his vision was with B2? Um, and pardon me, I'm fighting the uh, tail end of a cold, so occasionally I've got the sniffles and the, and the cough. Oh, this is, um, it's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the way Gary liked to work is he would, if, he, if it was something he was writing, he would, uh, he would produce uh, a few pages or a chapter or something like that and let us look at it and read it and digest it and make notes. And then we would have uh, a meeting with him that might involve, in this case in the house, just walking down a few steps and knocking on the door and, uh, if he was busy, he would talk to us about that subject. And if he what you know, I mean, if he wasn't busy talking, if he was, he would come back in thirty minutes. We would be able to to make it work. And uh, it was when the the offices expanded to the hotel in downtown Lake Geneva, which uh, became a two location situation, and then. It wasn't too long before we got in there that they were deciding, ah, we're, we're going to super gross for it. We're going to have to get an even bigger location. And so the, um, the warehouse on Sheridan Springs was, uh, was, was bought. Well, when, when the design and editing staff is in the hotel and the executive staff is in their offices in Sheridan Springs, that distance led to a, a communication situation that made it harder. If we wanted to talk to Gary about something like that, we would have to schedule an appointment and drive over there the mm -hmm. 10 or 15 minutes through you know, Lake Geneva tourist traffic to, to get there. Uh, so that became more of, a, more of an issue, but in the early days, it was walking down to his office. So, yeah. Uh I have a question about Dragon Magazine, so uh, and, and in particular Sage Advice. And I know you didn't write Sage Advice answers, but you know I, I have this I, image because we've seen some of the Sage Advice answers right. where the, the person answering, maybe Gene Wells, for example, will say, "Well, I talk to everybody. This is what they tell me, but I think differently." 
was sage advice basically whoever was writing the column sort of walking around i have this image and they stick their head and hey hey alan you know clerics turning or just whatever the question is right. neutral what what do you think and 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 or or was it ultimately is the person behind sage advice I would have thought it would have been Gary, but it sounds, but it's not ever very clear who is actually that person that is is the go-to person. Now, generally, it would be the uh, the person directly uh, initially. You know, Gene Wells uh, did uh, did it for a long time. If um, if she thought that the answer addressed something that fundamentally had, was not addressed in the rules, she would get Gary's opinion on something. But, but yes, if she, uh, more, it was more, it was more in the idea of, Hey guys, listen to this, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and our, our amusement, uh, sometimes. Uh, and, but yes, there were, there were questions if uh, you, you had to, I mean, you could walk down and, and ask somebody in the room, some question and three of us might not remember where the rule was and the fourth one would, uh, but it wouldn't be the same person all the time. So that's why, yes, uh, there was a lot of looking up and saying, uh, Hey, did we ever cover, uh, the, you know, what happens to a paladin's healing spell when they're in the plane of the demon web pits, you know? And they went, no, we didn't cover that one. So if, <laughs> so, if she, if, if it was covered, she would just answer the question without any further consult necessary. Uh, Dan reads a lot into some of the responses and trying to get the, the mens rea of what's happening back yeah. there. Because one of them was answered like, well, I, 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 this is what I was told, like, you know, and then spells. The, it, it was the it was the ranger and paladin right. spell level, right? right. What yeah, level that, you you get spells? Yeah. At. So when a ranger becomes eighth level, what level of spell uh, power does the ranger cast the first spell? And the ruling was they would be eighth level, so they basically instantly became an eighth level druid from that. And she paraphrasing. I was told this is correct. Right, she, you know, she, dis she disagreed. Yeah, she clearly. kind of implied that she disagreed and that I was, you know, almost direct. So it's just like, well, who, who said that? Right. Why, right. why did, did she say it that way? Why didn't she just say, Alan said this yeah, who, or Tim said this? Yeah, or, who said that? Do you remember? What <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to know. We want to know. I, right. I am going to say that was probably one that she might have gone to Gary with, but it's possible that she went to Frank Menser, that it was on the way that RPGA was ruling at the time, which we were trying to be supportive and consistent uh, of. Uh, so I would say that would be probably an e either either Frank or Gary question uh, on that. But yes, yeah. if that was that would be the diplomatic solution to saying I disagree with this. <laughs> yeah. So that so that just you know you we're we're going we're, we're pretending it's 1980, so we're going through the old dragons and white dwarfs because you know obviously 40 years on at our teenage look versus now as middle-aged men, it's, it's a, a different thing. So I guess the question I have, Alan, is, you know, obviously you were playing, you're a war gamer, you're playing D&D, &D, you get what ultimately is, you know, a dream job that you're going to go up there. Um, how is the, your D&D &D playing in where you came from different? I assume you played with them up there as well. How, how did, you know, did you ever play with, if you played with Gary and all these other folks, was the game different from the way you guys played it at home? 
it was, uh, I, I ended up being, you know, fairly proud of our, our home players because, um, the, we had a, we had a number of people that would have made good, uh, play testers because boy, if there was a chance to exploit a vagueness in the rules, we would exploit it. And, you know, sometimes we only get to do it once and the DM would shut it down and make a note, you know, can't do that anymore. Uh, but uh, if there was a hole in the rules, our, our group tended to find it. And that makes a great playtester, editor, you know, or, or designer. It's a, it is a certain type of mindset not to, you're not trying to uh, necessarily punch a hole in it, but but you are trying to use every bit of slack that the rules give you. So, yeah, uh, that was fun. Uh, when it got to TSR, most of the time, most of the games we were playing was from a business point of view. We were either playtesting something, trying to think of questions, trying to, uh, as, as, as we would put it, uh, you know, idiot-proof the rules or trying to, which is a, a, a rude way of saying we were trying to think of every question that someone might have with the product in its current state and try to answer that. Okay, and, and, and maybe it's time to shift to C2 and the Ghost Tower of Inverness. Uh, now, my understanding is you had created uh, your own campaign world, uh, which, which I believe... This was loosely, I know it's, it's going to change a lot, right? But so Ghost Tower of Inverness was loosely based upon your own campaign world, if I understand correctly. It, it was based on one of the uh, dungeons in my, my world, yeah. Um, and I had a large, uh, they're, they're called mega dungeons now, drawn uh, for this because back in the day, one of the things that we did require was for players to map. Uh, and if you wanted to map, uh, well, if you wanted to thoroughly explore a dungeon, you, you'd better, you'd better map it. Well, there was one player who was in our group who was tolerated primarily because of his mapping skills. He, he actually wasn't that social a person, but boy, <laughs> he'd draw well. So there were layers of, of Inverness that weren't in the published module that were designed to fool mappers. Uh, places like rotating rooms and, and shifting uh, corridors and, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, Harry Potter, Hogwarts, you know, staircases shifting sort of thing. Uh, <clears throat> but that was, a, that was a fun thing. And, and as a result um, of doing, of being carefully mapping and things like that, uh, you could find your way out when you needed to. There were there was one time I had a party kill because uh, they they failed to map correctly and could not find their way out. Um, that's old school. That's old school. There was a <laughs> there was another time where a party, uh, an actual player that was in the campaign, had been. Uh, had been killed and they didn't uh, decide to. You, he play. killed the actual player. Wow, <laughs> no, no, that no, is old school. The character, that the is character, old. the character had been killed, and uh, you're right. That's a that's a careful thing. <laughs> I shouldn't say. The, uh, well, that 
That's that would be that would be uh, playing my game. You you better take it seriously. You better make sure you have your ten foot pole there. That's yeah, right. and your will. The the character the character had had died, but the player was sore about it because he thought they didn't do enough to help him, or they didn't spend a raise spell on him, or or whatever. And he wrote me notes and and went back to town, rolled up a new character, and he. This this is meta gaming, but you know that's the way it is. He, the new character, walked out to the dungeon with a mule train and some supplies, and he bricked up the entrance that they had come in. And so <laughs> the players were actually trying to exit in a hurry, escaping some giant scorpions, and found their exit blocked by bricks and nearly died, you know, to a man because of of, of that. That was a lot of fun for me as a DM. <laughs> uh, so anyway, at at TSR, yeah, you know, we we there wasn't quite that ruthless level of play, you know. So uh, Inverness, uh, when it was adapted, was smaller because what happened was we were assigned to do a. I was assigned to do write the tournament for um, WinterCon in Detroit coming up. And I had a fairly short amount of time to do that. So I went, I did the, the old writer's trick of uh, looking in my files for something that I had started before. What can I adapt? Yes, I can adapt this. Let's come up with something new for the tournament. Um, I had played in tournaments. Uh, that's partly how I, I got the job, and one of the things that had annoyed me was the subjective nature of the scoring. It seemed like your group could do as well or better, and a judge at a neighboring table liked their his party and awarded them more points for solving something. And so I wanted to kind of minimize that, if not, you know, you can't totally eliminate it, but you can minimize it. Uh, so I created the Ghost Tower of Inverness uh, with the idea that, at least initially, it looked like the players were given choices, four choices, four towers to go down. As it turned out, you know, there was less of a choice than they than they thought, uh, and so it was. We call it the railgun mechanic. Uh, all of these. Uh, Items have to be checked off in a tournament to advance to the next point. In this case, there was multiple approaches to the railgun, and you didn't know you were on a railgun until later in the tournament. And and can I ask, how did it come that you were asked to write the adventure? Because right at the time, I think you you get a change in your title, right? You start as games editor. Right. And then you get you you get a different title, if I recall correctly. Yeah, every, uh, um, I was uh, design manager uh, at uh, was the was the next official title. But but let let me say that at the time when we hired editors or designers, all our designers knew how to be editors, and all of our editors knew how to be designers. Uh, you, at least in the initial stages. You were hiring people that were multi-talented and, uh, you know, kind of the top draft picks, you know, if you will. Right. Okay. Okay. And um, how, so how long did it take you to write it? When were you given, because this is for WinterCon in, what is it? I think it's November of 1979. Right. 
when were, when were you given the assignment? I believe that it was summer. So okay. a, a very short period of time. Um, and we were also trying out, this was the second uh, example of what we were trying out as the C-series, the competition series, where we would have a limited number of the module on sale after the tournament was concluded so that the players who had been through it, who were obviously thrilled by the adventure, could have a chance to buy it and inflict it on their own players. Uh, yes, for the, for the convention, there were in a, a limited number of the green uh, green printed cardboard versions of it in, in high quality Ziploc bags. Oh, that's right. Wonderful. Available, available for sale uh, there. Now, those green ones are, as you might have figured out, really rare collector's items. Um, they will list on eBay for a lot, uh, up to up to thousands of dollars. Um, at uh, one of the recent Gary Cons, I was uh, met in the restaurant by a man that, that walked up and showed me he had number zero zero one of wow the, of the green ones and it was because he had been on the winning team at uh, at that at that winter con he actually played in it been on the winning team and was you know allowed to be first in line to, to buy them at the at the convention did he ask you to sign it uh, he, he did uh, as a matter of fact he's um, Fairly well known now. David Baxter is is in Hollywood, and uh, he's in the the film industry now, and he's part of the the Hollywood people who play D and D, who ah. can now actually admit that they play D and D. That's right. But well, before we keep uh, your most stomach, because I want to, we have some uh, questions from our listeners that ah. are on too. Oh so. yeah, absolutely. As long as we, we want, certainly want to get back to uh, to Ghost Tower. Yeah, you want to ask, but kind of blending in. Yeah. So this was something you had worked on in your home game that you'd kind of... I, I actually had to shrink it for uh, the, the, the tournament uh, and cut off a lot of the lower levels and just concentrate, because we were working on a theme, you know, to, to get them to, to run to a certain point uh, as the, to win. And um, that design proved to be very good. Uh, I think we had a hundred teams uh, competing there and only one team, three teams finished on time, but only one team finished on time with all five players alive. So that was a winner, a clear winner. So gotcha. So uh, Grendel Wolf, one of our listeners, is curious to hear about Alan's uh, Gorman Gas Mega Dungeon, <laughs> and and just you know your approach to um, creating adventures, locales. You know, when, when, you, when you're either starting a campaign or developing an adventure, you know, what's your approach to that uh, in general? Um, it's really two separate questions, and let me, sure. let me give full credit. Gormenghast was uh, an inherited dungeon. Uh, the second DM in our group, uh, Howie Miller, uh, it was his, his brainchild, and he started it. And when he moved away and got out of gaming, he gave it to me, and I adapted it uh, and modified it and enlarged it some more. It was already huge. He was the, he was the first of us to um, take the idea of uh, making a large poster board uh, that could be filled with 
sheets of graph paper. And so you had not, uh, I'm going to say that for convenience sake, uh, a lot of DMs would have a level not larger than one graph paper, one sheet of graph right. paper. Sure. His idea was I could put 12 of these sheets of graph paper together on a piece of poster board and have an enormous level that would horribly confuse mappers, which uh, was our DM's goal because we were we were naughty DMs at the time. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I had not actually read Gorman Gust until how he started running it. Then I figured I'd better read it and try to glean some information and tips. Uh, he started it. Uh, I finished it. And the interesting story that somebody might have figured that out is that dungeon ended up on auction and was bought by the Strong Museum of Clay in New York. So mm. that, that, that mega dungeon uh, is actually in, the, in a museum. Awesome. So, so then, as far as your approach, because you know, I know we'll get back to Ghost Tower because that came out in 1980, but you know, for me as a, a teenager, there's this, uh, and you can see I've taped it multiple times, A3 is, you know, to me, is the, one of the perfect modules. It has, it's a tournament module, it has exploration, has a city adventure, it has a big fight. Um, and so, you know, as a teenager, this was what an adventure should be. So again, thank you for that. So we're very interested in being insightful of, you know, how you approach adventure creation. Well, um, the, to, to go back to my own uh, campaign, uh, when it came time to be a DM, we were woefully unprepared. There was nothing about how to be a good DM. And so I said, well, the first thing I need is a dungeon. And I, and I you know, whipped up a, a bad dungeon uh, that uh, you know, was the high school kid's version of a, of a dungeon. And, uh, and then, they, then they said, well, what city do we start in? And I went, oh, crap, I need to create a little bit of a world. And so I, I said, I've been reading this, you know, the Gondwain series. And I've been reading Witch World. And I've been reading a little bit of Jack Vance. And uh, so instead of creating my entire geography, I took three or four maps from book series that I've been reading and, and put them on a large um, hex uh, uh, sheet of, of board to create my world and just kind of scattered my dungeons around within a few days to uh, a short bit of travel from their base city. Um, and that's kind of how that world got created. And that's why so many of my geography names were familiar to people that had, had, had read things. And I wanted that to happen. I wanted them to suspect that if they went into the part of the world named Witch World, there would be high-level magic uh, and, and sorcery. Um, the Slave Lord series was a little different. Again, that was a, a competition. But what we had noticed in tournaments... Uh, was that when the first round slot of a tournament, say, you know, Thursday morning for Gen Con was run, the Thursday afternoon players would do somewhat better, and the Friday morning players would do even better than that. Well, mm. you know, gamers talk. You know, they can't help bragging about 
you know, well, I had to use a fly spell, you know, and somebody hears it and says, I'd better carry a fly spell for that tournament that we're playing in. Um, and we were trying to avoid that. So our idea, and this was the only time this we ever did this, was to create a tournament that had five different first round uh, adventures for Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon, Friday morning, Friday afternoon, Friday evening, so that every group that went in had the and the initial round of the tournament played a different adventure, but we balanced all five of those in terms of hit dice, what would later be called challenge rating and, and such. And that was the um, uh, that was the adventure. Uh, that was the the tough part, uh, 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 and that was you know Lawrence Schick and Harold Johnson and uh, Seb Cook and myself <coughs> and later uh, Tom Holvey, uh to work, work together, sitting many long evenings with each other's ideas, and Lawrence, who was tasked to do the final uh, round of the tournament, said, um, I need you to do something for me. Said, What's that? I said, I need you at the end of your semifinal round to create something that no team can possibly escape so that they end up being captured as prisoners. And I went, that's going to be hard within the rules, so I'm going to cheat. And so if you remember what happened at the end of A3, you know, yep. That's a Get. that's a that's a cheat. I made a trap that that nobody's going to get out of. That's running into the plot device, and uh, I blame Lawrence. You know, but, <laughs> but his but his brilliant his brilliant start to A four, where the characters are going to start with nothing but loincloths. You know, made for a great adventure. And I think in a tournament that works. But I know a lot of people were very unhappy if we were using their campaign or they've loaded up with magic items. And I know you put rules in that they should fight it out, and that's really a tournament play, but if they were defeated, because the slave lords in, in Suderham are obviously very formidable, players hate to be captured. They hate to be, they hate to have, you know, they're, they're super powerful and now they're flying around with blackjacks and... Yeah, they don't and, like shakedowns. They don't like shakedowns at all. So was that... Contra- what's, what's that I hear? Oh, it's a very tiny violin player. Yes. <laughs> that, he is old school. Yeah, I love it. Uh, allow right. me to have a drink of my uh, my player's tears. Oh, yeah. wonderful. Okay. Uh, no, I, I actually ran my uh, local group through that not too long ago. Uh, even though we were playing 3.5, I... I updated it and I allowed them to find uh, their stripped equipment uh, as, as they escaped uh, so there was a way to get them through the fun of, of the challenge of A4 of starting out you know utterly uh, without anything and having to improvise but without costing them all of their years of accumulation. So, so basically, A4 was the, the original Naked and Afraid. Yeah, TV? it was. <laughs> I, you know, I don't think there's anything more afraid than a, than a you know, high-level uh, D&D player character who, you know, doesn't have anything. 
Wait, well, so the magic user, the magic user doesn't even have his or her spell book? Oh, yeah. no components. Sorry, you know. Yeah. Oh no, so Alan, if I get how different was? Did you make any changes from the the Ghost Tower of Inverness that you used at WinterCon, um, and you put the green one, and the one that was ultimately released a year later, nineteen eighty? So, did any players do anything that made you say we need to change this? I don't think there were any player-inspired changes because, you know, like I said, I thought I'd developed the perfect tournament, only one team won. Uh, and, uh, but for, but we expanded uh, to fit the module format, and so there are many optional encounters in the red version that weren't in the green one. So it's going to, if you play the entire uh, red C2, it's going to take more than one session. Uh, yeah, I, and, and if I can ask you, you had said on another interview something about a 32-page requirement, right? That it, I, there was a reason for that, that so many modules are 32 pages. Uh, it's, it's financial and printing. Uh, 32 pages uh, is the standard length for uh, the web printing press at the, at the time, and it's actually much more economical to print 32 pages than it is to print 29 pages. Um, there are multiples of four that you can use that, that are price points, but 32 and 64 are the most efficient, uh, page set settings for printing. Uh, and if you, if you think about it, the, uh, the mod, the 32 page module was printed all, you know, like on, on one side of, a. uh, on, on both sides of a, a large sheet of paper, folded multiple times, and and then cut to to represent the what you got out of the module. And there's another fascinating story, I believe, behind the iconic blue, right? So right. The, these this, this blue color, as we know, right? I mean, you can still replicate this, and people want to replicate right. this, right? But there's a there's a story behind this iconic blue, right? Yes, uh, blue was chosen because it doesn't show up well in the photocopiers of the time. Uh, if you're trying to do a black and white uh, Xerox copy, uh, blue didn't translate very well. The other option was to do a, a dark red, which showed up as black. Uh, so if you wanted to, uh, Lou Zaki did that with some of his games. If you photocopied a black print on a red page, you've got a totally black photocopy. Okay. Yes, I thought that so was... That was that early digital rights protection. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, and if I, so if I can ask you some questions about Ghost Tower, I just ran it. I had not run it before. I, I went through it. You probably don't remember me, but I went through it, uh, your game at GaryCon a couple years ago and, and had a lot of fun. And I just ran it for a, a group here locally. You weren't identified as the best player there at the table? I did No, stunningly, I did not get any... Alan did not he give me any sort the, of award. He didn't give you an award, the best player. No. award you extra points. I think he asked me to leave early. <laughs> I, I did not. Uh, no, he did not. He's very I, gracious. I played... I, I, I run this literally at every convention that I go to. Um, and the the sometimes more than once at a convention. And the interesting thing is that they're never the same. I mean, I think it's going to be the same, but players always do something different. Uh, that's, you know. that's the great thing about D&D. &D. It really is. Right. 
Um, and what I loved about the adventure is a lot of fun to run. The players had a lot of fun in it. You know, as, as a tournament adventure, it works beautifully as a one-off, you know, because uh, the players, you know, they, they enjoy the challenge. And I think what's great about this adventure is you really have hit a really good combination of some, a lot of hack and slash. There are some nasty monsters in here. One character survived. But coupled with that are some really interesting brain teasers, uh, you know, where players really have to use their smarts. Um, and if I could ask you, can we, like, it's been 40 years. Can we do spoilers? Well, I mean, the, you know, it's a good question. You just ran it. How many of them have actually went through it, the ones that you played? They, no, none of them. None of them had been through it. it I was, mean, this is so great about these adventures, these modules, they're coming around. We have people who've never played them. And never played them. And but you can spoil it. So attention, spo this is spoiler alert right I, now. And, so I, and I also play, you know, I, I run for people that might have played it or read it 20 years ago, and, you know, mostly they don't remember, you know, everything about it. And if I sense that they do remember something, uh, I will alter. <laughs> so. Is there, and I'm going to tell you what my favorite room was running it. Um, but maybe you can tell us first, is there a room that you have as a favorite that when you run it at conventions that you always get a kick out of? I get a kick out of the bugbear room because if um, there, there are ways to deal with that other than fighting the entire bunch piecemeal. Uh, and if they figure it out, uh, they're going to save a lot of time and you know, hopefully progress towards the, the goal. Uh, oh, I'm trying, nice. I'm trying to remember. I believe that, I believe that this was run in, in three hours was the time limit that we had at oh. the original tournament. Um, mostly we run it in, in four hour slots now at, at conventions. And, uh, if you waste a lot of time, you're not going to get to the end. So, is there, oh, I'm going to ask you, and don't give away the answer to this. So the bugbear room, that is a brain teaser. Even as I was the DM running it, I was trying to figure out how can, is it, so is it possible to not have to fight a single bugbear? Yes. Okay. Don't tell us how, but that's very interesting. That's a, that's a tough one. I was trying to think through it as a DM. There, um, my, there's at least, there's at least three ways that I've seen done. So, yeah. Oh, and people have done that yeah. at the convention. Okay. Yeah. Um, did um do you know if the group that didn't lose anybody at WinterCon would do you know if they were able to avoid fight, uh, animating any bugbears? I did not actually run that group that, that won, so I don't know if they did or not. Um, you know how many? Well, you, you, I'm sure you don't remember this. Why would you? But when I was in the game at GaryCon with you, I believe that we had to fight. Wait for it. Wait for it. Sixteen bugbears, probably. <laughs> That's <laughs> is that the average? Is that the norm? Um. It is. It is the norm to to yes, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, my my favorite room when I ran it was the uh, the uh, the room the, the chess room. Yes, uh, uh, or as we call it, the multicolored square room. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, so yeah, that that's one of the ones where if I think that uh, somebody's picked up on something. The pattern can be altered uh, so that uh, they have to think, do a little more thinking on it. Uh, I was I was proud of that. That's a uh, that's a good one. And um, 
There's, uh, there are also uh, a couple of monsters that if you work out ways to not actually look at them, you'll, you'll fare well. So, yes. Yes, and I actually, um, so the great thing about the room, the multicolored room, and, and what was so brilliant about it is, of course, the use of the colors. Because, you know, it, it, and I don't know how much I want to give away, but, you know, the use, the use of the colors was obviously quite intentional by you. Right. Uh, and causes a lot of problems for most players. Well, that's, like. that's because we as humans have uh, uh, perception filters. And we, we see things, if it's not the precise pattern that we're used to, we don't perceive it as that pattern. And so by altering a couple of conditions of that, I was able to alter the most players' perceptions of, of what they're seeing. Uh, and that, by the way, is another room that can be solved in non-traditional ways. Um, so, Oh, okay. Yeah. Got some homework. I, I've never I, played it. Oh, so it's a lot of fun. I, I was going to play it, but then you said you had too many players, and then you end up with three, so I didn't go. That's true. Right. So you have to run it again for me. So yes. So I, I can't... by the way, at, at conventions, I will often run it with more than five. You know, because it really doesn't matter if you have an extra fighter, an extra thief, uh, uh, extra whatever. You know, in there, uh, if they if they bog down in hack and slash, it's all going to you know hurt anyway. So yes, and I and I had a player that was very clever. Because I had, I well, I had given them a mirror, and so they were, they they, they were very cautious. So these these were veteran players, and they 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 they're very suspicious. If they see no. just no right, they just see someone singing and clipping <laughs> flowers. You know, you know, if, uh, you know I, I like to say that that whatever your level of paranoia is, it's not enough. Uh, but uh, if you go through the entire dungeon with a ten foot pole and peeking around corners with a mirror and stuff like that, you're not going to finish in time. Uh, so, you know, there's that, there's that pressure as well. Uh, you have to balance uh, some things. And, and I want to ask about that and about Gary in particular. So my understanding is that Gary, I think Jim Ward has said that, uh, well, well Gary, Gary was a very good player, right? And it was very 16th player. Well, you did finish sick. We, we got a kick out of the fact that there was a listing of where people finished in a particular tournament. The GM Masters, it was, <laughs> do, it was done in, uh, in the summer of 79, but the posting, it was the second annual Masters thing. And I think you ca- uh, Gary came in 16th. Yeah, he was 16th. Uh, he probably finished behind you. I, I think he did. He did. I, was he Alan did. in there? Yes, yeah. Alan was. We there. thought it was very funny that Gary Gygax would finish sixth. We just assumed he'd be number one. You know? That's right. Or at least like almost a Soviet kind of thing. Hey, number one, Gary. Yeah. Gary, right. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, Whether he won or not. You know, I suspect that if he had compiled it, you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps it might have been. But no, he was, uh, I mean, as a DM, he was honest. You know, he didn't, uh, he didn't fudge things like that. Um, I'm going to say that I, as a DM, at least with my home campaign and sometimes at tournaments, I try not to kill player characters as a result of, of bad luck. Uh, if their their own stupidity can can wipe them out, I'm happy, you know, for that. But uh, but I try not to let horribly bad luck be the decider or an early decider of, of something so 
And, and so uh, I have a couple more questions on, on Ghost Tower. So the Soul Gem, did you in your own mind ever decide what the, how the Soul Gem could be wielded? Uh, I mean, obviously I know it's, it's designed for the competition and just to get it, not to use it thereafter. But if you were running this as a campaign uh, and you decided to hold on to the Soul Gem, and, and, and I understand that, you know, there's, you know, because in a campaign you might not be compelled to bring it back to uh, the Duke. So, for example, in the game I ran, they actually were working for the slavers, and now the slavers have, not only have they kidnapped the Seer of Ernst, they also have the Soul Gem, and the Seer of Ernst has told them how to use it. So, had you ever worked out in your mind? Because I think you said there's like millions, millions of souls in this gem, and they can be used, you can use those souls. Well, uh that was in the legendary background part, and and all of the facts may not be precisely, you know, as stated. But yes, the seer uh, knew how well enough that he could uh, pull out uh, a a soul uh, of the from the specific facet and restore it to, for example, if the the characters that had retrieved it had lost a couple of people. The module says that they can they can be restored to their bodies, or as he says, less happily if their bodies were not brought back to other bodies. So this implies the seer is willing to do, you know, a little bit of, you know, that there are going to be some spare corpses around, uh, you know, for him to work with. Um, the original the originator, Galop Dreidel, was an immensely powerful wizard and. He could actually wield it uh, in in battle, and and by that I mean he could aim the rays. And so, uh, if you are for you know facing an army, taking out one eighth of them, you know, or making one eighth uh, do saves uh, is a, is a good equalizer. Uh, so yeah, it could be immensely powerful. The, there probably are not millions of souls in there. Yeah, let's keep it to hundreds or thousands. Uh, okay. But yes, I mean, being able to call forth a, a you know, a brigade of, of, of warriors uh, would be useful for a wizard, too. Okay. And one let's see. So I think the, I love the cover. The cover is, is amazing. But so uh, any reason for the change of the cover? Because you had the, the green version... And then you have the the one that was published, and it is different. And um, you're not you're not going to find this in, in the the adventure itself. So I was just curious about the change in the cover. Well, uh, I don't know whether you've seen it, but on on Facebook for a while there was a, a series of, of memes where they took D and D covers and put humorous names to them, uh, and that was called the Great Toothpaste Monster. Um, oh, <laughs> um, I like it though. But uh, the reason that it was changed was because the first illustration for the green one, when you do a, a two-color uh, uh, piece or a basically black ink on whatever color that you're, you're doing, it's a different art work than trying to do a full color. And by the time we'd gotten around to publishing that from the tournament, uh, the art staff had been expanded as well, so there were more people to draw on for the internal illustrations and for the and for the cover. 
Um, so two different things. First, two-color art is different from multicolor art. Uh, and second, the art staff had expanded. But the art staff was also told not to uh, put something on the cover that would be a giveaway of something yeah. that was actually inside or reveal a secret. Now, the back illustration actually sort of does, yeah. but only if you know what's happening later on. Um, you can you can figure out, oh, that's a big guy we're going to have to fight. And uh, But after you've run through it, you look at that, with new eyes and and say, oh, that was telling us something. Okay, that explains it. And 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 Inverness was not about Scotland. No, right? uh, Inverness was <clears throat> is is a lovely city in Scotland. Uh, there is a um, I, I I love the name, uh, and I've actually been there recently. And there's a picture of me in front of Castle Inverness holding the uh, the C2 module, so I've got oh, as, awesome. as, a, as a nerd. Hang on a minute. Sure. But the title, the title was a spinoff of a bad and strange and funny radio serial I heard in college called The Fourth Tower of Inverness. That actually was uh, set there, but I love the name Inverness. It just... It had a ring to it, uh, and uh, I, it, it's a generic phrase meaning the mouth of the river, uh, so uh, or the, the settlement at the mouth of the river. Uh, so I took that, I, I made it a ghost tower instead of a, uh, a fourth tower, and that's where the, the resemblance ends, I was inspired and gave a little hat tip to something that had provided some, uh, some entertainment for me while I was in college. Okay. Uh, well, that's the questions I have about Ghost Tower. So do we, I don't know if we have any questions, online questions. So, uh, you know, I, I guess you're going to continue on his career then and then what he did after. Is that your plan? Yeah. Do you have another five hours? Yeah, I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure how many questions because I wanted because you know. Well, we have to. So things I would definitely want to talk about. We have to hear about when the FBI visited because the okay. FBI visit. So right. that definitely. Yeah, we have to hear about that. We got to hear about that, and I certainly want to hear about uh, you know his time after TSR and, okay. and the last time he talked to Gary. So you mentioned um, one of our listeners. You mentioned about three point five D and D. So you obviously played after you left TSR. Is is three are you still playing today? What version are you playing? Um, and what qualities of 3.5 did you like? Because obviously that's a, a radical difference from in, in the mechanics uh, from first edition. Uh, yes, uh, still playing today. As a matter of fact, I'm going to a game tonight. Uh, so uh, our what, what, ta- what time? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, doors open at five. So uh, uh, well, let's see. He's in Alabama. We can get there, don't you think? Yeah. Get to lower lower Alabama. That's true. Probably not there. We have to get a flight. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, we are we play three point five primarily, uh, and it's a practical reason. We we went through, I mean, first edition and then second edition and regular three and all of the supplements. And when we got to three point five, we said, all right, this fixed most of the problems that we were having with the earlier systems and by then several of us had all of the books and we said 
we're heavily invested in 3.5 <laughs> books. We're just going to stick with that. Right. Uh, and we're, we're happy with that. My niece runs a 5e campaign, and I play in that uh, sometimes as well. Uh, so I'm okay with 5th edition. I think that it's a great version to uh, bring new players in, especially the younger players, uh, because it's a little less rules-heavy and a little more um, kind of the O-D&D flavor of do whatever you want, you know, just make it fun uh, kind, of, kind of thing. Um, so yes, I will, I will play any edition, uh, uh, that's, that's out there. Uh, there are differences. I kind of like in 3.5, the, the skill system makes it possible to design different flavors of classes. Uh, we always, one of our favorite sayings is a rogue is asked to do something like search for traps. And he might say, I'm not that kind of rogue. That means I'm a combat rogue, or I'm a a you know uh, some there there are specialties. There's like three different specialties within a rogue, depending, and you can't be excellent at all of them. You can either build the search and disable traps type of rogue, or you build a combat rogue, uh, or you can be the the diplomatic uh, 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 rogue. Um, so we like the uh, we like the three point five skill set and and are very comfortable with that. Um, I enjoy playing five E, uh, you know, and I love the renaissance that it's made in the in the industry. As a matter of fact, um, a friend of mine, uh, Eliza Teague, wrote a sequel to Ghost Tower of Inverness in five E for uh, Adventurers League for Gary Khan a couple of years ago. And, uh, and she's a, a lot of fun and a good writer. And, you know, the tagline for it, should you're interested in, is, is many years ago, your group uh, succeeded in taking the, the, the soul gem out of the ghost tower of Inverness. Now you have to put it back. <laughs> ah, awesome. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, can you tell us a little bit about this FBI visit that uh, you got when you were at T TSR? Because, because you were working, I believe, on uh, on Top Secret at the time, correct? Top Secret. I was the editor for Top Secret, which involved uh, a lot of correspondence with the author Merle Rasmussen, who lived in Iowa at the time. Um, this is pre-internet, children. We we used mail. Uh, we typed out things in on uh, on uh, paper and used carbon copies. Wow! And would uh, have to if if I needed to make a change in a chapter, I would make my changes and mail it back to Merle, and maybe ask him for ten more pages on uh, 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 this type of weapons table. He would then send me fifteen pages of, of weapons. And I'd have to find a page or two to cut out of that, and we'd be expanding. Anyway, as part of the playtest of this, the TSR group had a um, global top-secret game going where we were the heads of various countries' intelligence services. Um, somebody was the... Uh, I think for the major powers, we divided it among two of us, so... Two of us were the head of the KGB. Two of us were the head of the of the United States of the CIA, and one for MI6, 
uh, one for Mossad in Israel, and, and so on. Um, there was a non-player character called William Weatherby who uh, makes a, an appearance in a couple of the early modules uh, that we printed as well. And um, as the head of the KGB, I was unsatisfied with some of our, our developments in uh, Beirut and, and the Middle East. And I was also always trying to foment unrest and, and cause troubles down there. And at one point, we had decided to, uh, uh, as they say in the business, terminate uh, Mr. Weatherby. And I had sent uh, uh, orders to that effect, really just very vague things. And the way the game was working was we would, we would type our notes and, and, uh, and address it to the, the moderator or the administrator of the game who would then decide with dice rolls how successful we were. Well, at some point, the envelope fell out of his pocket at a restaurant uh, after he had picked up the, 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 the envelope he'd gone to eat. envelope fell out of his pocket and was found by a restaurant person who went, KGB is planning to assassinate <laughs> William Weatherby, you know, to call the FBI. And so they called the FBI in. To their credit, the FBI really didn't believe there was an active KGB cell in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. You know, but they're required to come and do their due diligence and make sure. So they came and visited and asked us questions. They were intrigued by our game and uh, looked <laughs> forward to seeing it when it came out. <laughs> well, didn't, didn't the FBI? Did it sound like similar questions that Dan does? <laughs> is it probably doesn't notice any difference between your questions and FBI. He's been interrogated by right. it. He's That's used right. to this. That's right. Two hours of it. Well, yeah. and I didn't. Didn't we discover later that the FBI had a file on Gary? Uh, they they did, uh, <laughs> and I think that. At the time, the satanic panic uh, thing was starting to come up, and so uh, they had started a file on, on role-playing games and were basically collecting information, I think, rather than any active interrogate, uh, surveillance or, or monitoring or anything like that. But you want to have a, you want to have a, a pattern of evidence um, especially in an agency like that, if something happened later and a supervisor said, why haven't you been surveilling this? You know, at least. Yeah. So I was like, so, so what, what was more likely? Satanist? Just, you Sorry, know, cultists? KG, KBG? Or, 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 yeah, KGB uh, operatives. Yeah. In, in Wisconsin, all within Wisconsin, that hotbed. Well, of, because that's, you don't ever suspect it. Right. That's, if you were going to set up a satanic cult, Wisconsin. Is there something you'd like to admit? Do we have breaking news? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll admit that uh, our uh, Lutheran pastor played D&D with us. Uh, <laughs> right. he, he enjoyed the idea of being a cleric and fighting evil. Yes, yeah, so. that's right. It would be great if he'd been like a lawful evil cleric. Well, that's what I've heard a lot of people, because it's role-playing. They want to try something different. Right? Like they spend their whole lives yes. you know, being pious, and they, they, they want to be the you know, chaotic, the, neutral, the, the scion of yeah. Orcus. Well, <laughs> of course. One of our one of our players in Birmingham here is uh, is a, an elder and a deacon in, in our church and uh, and yeah he 
he when he plays, he doesn't mind. Uh, he says it's a catharsis to get his gut wrenching evil, you know, out. Uh, so he doesn't have to do it in real life. So. Exactly. Do you play with uh, folks that from forty years ago, or are they just different folks that? Uh, ha- some of them are from the forty years ago, and some of them are are much younger. I've introduced my my grandchildren to it, and my my niece. Uh, not only plays, she's a DM now, so I have been passing the torch. I mean, uh, uh, Grandpa's Alan Hammock, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess yeah. he's okay. Well, it's not like you're a guy. One, 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 <laughs> one of my granddaughters actually got into a, a D&D group because they said, have you played before? And said, well, my, my grandfather helped edit the Dungeon Master's Guide, you know, so yeah, yeah. It, it can help. That's awesome. Uh, so in 1983, right? I mean, so so you're you're let go. If I understand, were, were you part of that sort of mass layoff that happened in in 1983? Right. There were several, a couple of waves of purges, and I was caught up in one of them. Uh, TSR had expanded well beyond what it it really needed to. Uh, this goes into things that have been documented in other in other sure. uh, areas, but. Uh, Gary and, and and Brian and Kevin were, were not really businessmen, and they certainly weren't trained for large-scope uh, businesses like what we became. But in the, in the idea of diversifying, uh, some of them diversified into fields that, that were questionable, like uh, their own miniatures and needlework uh, companies and... and Gosh, things like that. In any event, at, uh, in 1983, uh, a lot of us were let go in a, in a couple of waves. Uh, we called them the, the purges. And uh, mm. we were arguing, I was a, a middle manager, a product planning manager at the time. Uh, basically, my responsibility was um, non-fantasy role-playing games. So everything except D&D, that top secret gangbusters, Star Frontiers, uh, things like that. Um, and when the word first came to me that we were going to let go some designers, uh, my suggestion was that first we might want to let go some of the lawyers and accountants uh, because if you let go of the designers, you're not going to have product to pay the existing people there. Uh, but it had gone too far by that time, and really it was the, the banks that were calling the shots on uh, how many people were going to have to be let go. Uh, so, yes, I was let go. Uh, at the exit interview uh, that uh, the HR uh, people had, I think they were surprised when I said, if you're going to let me go, I want to exercise my stock options at mm-hmm. At the very early days, TSR had a uh, uh, thing where employees could deduct part of their their payroll to buy stock in TSR. And it, we weren't paid a lot, but I had bought a little bit and a little bit over time. And the stock price was valued much higher than what I had bought it at. So I did come out with, you know, some you know tens of thousands of dollars. So I like to say that it was 
more expensive for them to fire me than it would have been for them to keep me for another year. But uh, uh, so I had a small victory as I <laughs> took my wounded pride in my books and went home. Well, I, yeah, because you had thought this was going to be a year. And, you know, I, I worked at a place where I thought, oh, I'll stay here a year. And a year becomes two, becomes three, becomes four. And you're seeing, obviously, the, this company start from being in a house multiple generations you're you're you know, basically masters of your domain and and chemistry is looking further and further into the into the background right and then you right. get the shock of um, was it really a shock you know when they started the you know the AD&D needlepoint and you know whatever uh, you're like oh this is when we've proverbially jumped the shark or did you or was it really you know oh my goodness I'm being let go well uh, it 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 was a shock because I, I kind of thought that it would uh, go in a reverse seniority uh, 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 sort of thing. Um, I had started taking some MBA courses by then, uh, being a middle manager, the way my career was evolving, that's, you know, that's what I thought things were, were right. going to be. Um, so the idea of a shrinking wasn't a shock. The, uh, the scope of it was... And since I was about the 12th employee at TSR at the time that I was hired, I right. kind of figured that I had a way to go, but that wasn't the way that, that they saw it. Uh, mm. I perhaps, in retrospect, perhaps I had worked my way up to a, a vulnerable position in, in, in the middle management, but it wasn't just me. There were designers let go, editors let go. My, I went to, you know, complain to my supervisor about it at the time and found out that he had been let go a few minutes earlier. So, you know, it was one of one of those things. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's it's I thought that we might have to lose 20 or uh, people or so at the time. And I think there were closer to 70 or 80 in the first in the first wave. Wow. Did, did you have a sense when you were there, particularly in the first couple years, did you have the sense that you were doing something, you know, important? And I, and I don't mean to overstate it, but, you know, for, for, for you know, what, what D&D did for gaming was incredible. And here you are 40 years later, we're asking you about 40 years ago and, and what was your first day like? Did you have any sense at the time that you, you were doing something very special? Well, not of not of this scale. I mean, it was special to me because I thought we were improving our hobby. You know that I was going to get a chance to contribute to to gaming and to you know role playing and D and D, which which I enjoyed. And so, you know, this is really great. I get a chance to make a contribution to my to my hobby after three years. Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, I by two years I had. Uh, met someone, and the third year I had been married, and uh, we had bought a house up there. So it was becoming a more permanent arrangement, in my you know, in my opinion. So really, it was the investment of uh, getting getting married and buying a house in the worst of all possible housing markets uh, with horrible, horrible interest rates that that made it more of a financial shock when uh, when the when the layoffs came. But yeah. I never thought that 40 years down the road we'd still be talking about it because at the time I thought, well, if TSR is spiraling down like this, it won't be too long before this hobby's gone and we'll all just be playing out of our old books uh, at that point. 
Uh, glad, glad to see that I was wrong. And by the way, I'm constantly uh, humbled and reminded, you know, how lucky I am and, and was to, uh, to be asked to talk about these things, to be asked to play, uh, to run games for people at conventions. Um, I'm very grateful to the gamers and, and, and my fans and the people that appreciate me. So thank you very much. Oh, well, again, it's, and I think we're seeing a renaissance. We started up only a few years ago. I think when, when I had children, um, that kind of got me started back into it when they became old enough to play and, you know, to be able to play and, and show them. Um, and, and I'm glad there's a fifth edition because, you know, my youngest son who's 17, that's going to be his edition. We can't, we've got to keep the game moving forward, you know, and, and when they have kids and the ninth edition comes out, hopefully, you know, that'll be their version. It it, it needs to be evergreen, but we thank you uh, tremendously. Again, this, you, you know, this, this module, I remember going with my mother places and on the subway in New York, and this was my reading companion of this is how an adventure was supposed to be made. And I think, you know, we all remember going into places like Walden Books. Yep. You know, you'd see this in shrink wrap right there, and it was just, it was mesmerizing. And your friends would steal it because they were... Because we couldn't afford it. Right. You know, just, we couldn't, yeah, no, you just... We didn't, didn't copy them. We just, they just put it in their pants and left it and walked out. So that was, and they wouldn't tell you that until they left. And you're like, really? You just stole that? Thanks. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, you're from New York, right? Dino was his name. You're from New York. Yeah, Dino. New York. Yep. I, I think you owe me 12 cents in royalties. So. Right, exactly. Sir, right. Well, sir, we plus will, interest. Yeah. Don't forget about that interest. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will be happy to send that through uh, PayPal or... <laughs> or, or something else for you. For and that. we're calling the FBI um, on Dino. So um, now, obviously, things had changed a lot because where you thought that this was just going to be a year and, you know, you were very close to getting your chemistry degree, once you leave TSR, if I understand correctly, uh, you open up a game shop. Yes. Uh, we went back to I, – I decided um, uh, I tried to get on as a freelancer with some of the other companies that developed, got a little bit of work, um, but not enough. Uh, so I said, if I'm going to be unemployed, I'm going to move back down south where I can be unemployed and warm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, those Wisconsin winters were brutal. Uh, uh-huh. So, yes, went back to my home in Birmingham and uh, took some of the money that uh, that uh, we had saved and opened a game book and comic shop. And I thought, you know, yeah, Birmingham really doesn't have a, a – great game specialty shop. I had seen what those could, could look like and uh, thought, sure, there's a market for it. And, uh, and so, yeah, the, uh, and I said, well, what else don't we have? We don't have a bookstore that has all of this science fiction and mystery books in print, you know, at one time. I said, we'll do that. And I'll throw in comics as well. Um, little did I know that comics were going to keep my store alive as long as it did. Uh, that, that actually became the, the huge seller. Uh, this was about the start of the Books A Million kind of thing, and that put a lot of pressure on the brick-and-mortar uh, bookstores. Uh, anybody that had to maintain inventory in a small capacity, and even, even some of the gamers would come into my... Um, store look at some of the miniatures or something that we had on display and then order them from someone that could give them a five percent discount you know uh, uh so that was uh it was difficult but still a lot of fun there uh uh as well 
Um, during that time, I was first asked to to go to a convention as as a guest, and uh, you know, whipped up a, a module uh, for them called that I called Knight of the Black Swords. I'm always very good at titles, I think, you know, and then I have to come up with a plot to, to match it. <laughs> and so this was, I thought, what hasn't been done? And I said, we're going to have a, a party of lawful evil characters that have to cooperate, but each has their own agenda and put them on a Mission Impossible uh, sort of situation uh, through the plains of hell. And uh, so that, hell. That, that became that. Later on, was published by Diecast Games. Um, uh, not too long ago, and uh, so that kind of started me into going to conventions as a guest uh, instead of just as as a gamer. Um, I'm kind of a different guest because my income doesn't derive entirely or hardly at all from the gaming industry anymore. And so when I go to a convention, I want to play as well. So I I I I, I still say. Hey guys, don't just make me a guest. I need a badge. Register and play games too. Uh, that would be interesting. You just sit down at a game. You turn to your left and sit right. down. Alan Hammond. Alan was playing. Yeah. So how long did the uh, shop last? Uh, I, it lasted about uh, five years for us before we sold it to um, the man who would eventually become my son-in-law. Married married my daughter. Uh, oh, okay. And that lasted another four or five years, um, um, and the pressures finally, you know, got to them uh, to to close uh, as well. But um, so that was that was good. Uh, during that time, I actually designed a, a murder mystery game as well, uh, just for the shop. We had sold a couple, but what I was seeing was that they were one shot games you would spend 30 bucks for a party murder mystery game and it had invitations sent out one of them would say you're the murderer and back you know and there were costume tips and lines of dialogue and clues the idea is that all the, the guests who got them would interact and ask each other questions and figure out who the murderer was and i said well this is fun but gosh you know one shot games and so i designed a, a game like that where it was reusable, where you could have a different person be the murderer on different occasions if you decided to rerun it. Uh, wasn't uh, you know wasn't a huge success, but it was sold within the shop, and it was something I like to keep trying different things. And and you've recently you've worked on the new Top Secret, right? Correct, uh, Top Secret New World Order. Awesome. Uh, this I love Top Secret, so I. Got Thank you. Um, this is an entirely uh, new game uh, with, uh, with none of the material from before, except that an enterprising man named Jason Elliott noticed that the TSR and the top secret uh, trademarks were expired, and so he snatched them up. Yeah. And then, interesting. And then Jason, who had met Merle a long time ago, uh, asked him... To, uh, to create a new game, and uh, Merle asked if I could be the editor, and they agreed, and over the course of several years and conference calls uh, with uh, us and James Carpio, who had developed some new uh, dice mechanics uh, for the game, uh, and uh, other, other people involved, the design team came out with Top Secret New World Order, which 
recently, um, we had a game, a room at uh, TotalCon in Boston last weekend that had five top secret games going simultaneously in the room. Uh, awesome. That was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun game. It's new mechanics. It's more uh, yeah, today's kind of moving uh Moving on, sort of, uh, sort of game. Uh, I think there's less things where you get bogged down and having to look up uh, rules and and situations. So. And you also you run Boot Hill. I know you wrote a Boot Hill adventure yep. uh, in the '80s, and and you also run Boot Hill games now at conventions too, right? Right. I, I love Boot Hill. I love the simplicity of it. Um, and uh, it's just percentage dice is is all you need to to make that work. And as a matter of fact, I loved it so much that I had adopted that combat system into Top Secret, the first one, when we first got it. And the reason is partially financial, because as a publisher, adding dice as a component was an expensive component. And if you could make it just a set of percentile dice instead of an entire set of polyhedral dice, you could save 20 cents per package and that's a big deal over hundreds of thousands you know, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of copies so uh, there are a lot of times practical reasons for what seem arbitrary decisions in the, the game publishing uh, industry um, one of the uh, truisms uh, that if you ask established game publishers uh, a question like well, how do I make a million dollars in game publishing? The answer is start with five million dollars. So <laughs> that's right to be sure. Um, how often did you, after you left TSR, did you stay in contact with Gary at all? I would uh, see him at conventions. I, I came back to uh, uh, the Gen Cons. Um, at least while they were still in Milwaukee, and so I would get a chance to see him at that point. Um, he had formed New Infinity uh, uh, by then and was working on, on his own projects. So, you know, it was one of those things where we were, uh, we were both cut out of, of TSR, you know, by, by that time. Uh, there's an article on called the Sheridan Springs Massacre or something like that 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 will detail more things about how that how that came to be. But but yeah, we were all moving on. We both liked gaming. We were both still trying to do things in role playing, but uh, not together. So um, I didn't see him much after that. Okay. Do you remember the last time you saw him before his passing? Uh, I'm going to say it was, it was probably at a, at a Gen Con and we would uh, talk in, in passing or, um, uh, sometimes there were industry gatherings, uh, where we would, uh, you know, talk a little bit shop and, uh, right. talk about what, uh, who was publishing what and what the better, you know, did somebody come up with a better idea, you know, for this and, you know, is that something we should borrow for the things that we're doing and things like that. Yeah, you're always as gamers. You're looking for good ideas. Did they work? Uh, we look at other companies as as playtesters for ideas. And gosh, if something works, you know, you want to use it. And if something doesn't work, you want to know about that as well. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like you said, we 
we have this rich history, and we're so thankful to Alan to, you know, give us his perspective. Because you know, unfortunately, a lot of people, yeah, there's books that have been created. There's, but it's, it's, you know, I see it with my kids. You know, they're talking about the '90s, and they have a version of it which is a perspective they've either gotten through TV or whatever. And it's like, man, that's not how it was. So it's always wonderful to hear it from someone who's actually lived through it. And if, if folks want to get the new uh, Top Secret, they can get it at uh, Amazon or places, or where can they pick that up if they are interested in that? Uh, right. Probably the easiest way is to uh, order uh, direct from uh, TSR, the new TSR uh, website. Okay. And if you, uh, if you look up Top Secret, New World Order, you will find uh, other uh, distributors as, as well that, that have them. Um, you know, just uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Or if you go to any convention that uh, Merle and I are, will be attending, somebody there will have them for sale. Um, so that would, in the upcoming future, that would be GaryCon in a few weeks. And um, the uh, new, uh, uh, I've got it, uh, North Texas RPG Con had to get all the initials right in, in June, right? In June in Dallas and Gamehole Con in Madison in November. Uh, okay. uh, so those are good uh, uh, for that. Um, gosh, uh, I want to give a shout out to the people at Total Con. They threw a surprise 40th anniversary party for Merle and me for Top Secret and even had a large cake with the cover of Top Secret <laughs> on the Wonderful. cake. Uh, champagne. It was, it was lovely. It was, it was great. There were uh, about 30 people uh, in the auditorium as opposed to the usual lecture that Merle and I give of, of four or five people. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, which, which we're happy to, to do. Uh, well, but, uh, yeah. Someone in our local group is a huge, been administrator for years. Nick, he loves Top Secret, and I haven't played with him. We used to play uh, back in the day. It was, and I, yeah, it was I think he game. played at GaryCon with Merle Rasmussen. He did, I believe. He did. Oh, okay. He, yeah, it's a special oh, that's event. right. He went there. And is there your uh, your module with Diecast Games, Knight of the Black Swords? Is that readily available, or has that already become difficult to find? I would class that in the difficult to find uh, not uh, not impossible but uh, uh, again uh, at um, conventions that I'm going to be at uh, more likely that that one of the the retailers there will have will have dug some up to to, to find to sell so right okay okay great and also you also recently you were a contributor to a Goodman games book right about how to write adventure modules. That don't suck, right? I, I, lo- I love the title. I couldn't uh, couldn't pass up on uh, on that, uh, and so uh, I'm, I made a contribution uh, to that, and uh, also a contribution to Legendary Games um, uh, Ultimate uh, Kingdom. I think uh, is is what it was, and uh, I wrote an article on bards uh, and uh, or bards and heraldry, uh, uh, how heraldry. Uh, was, was how heralds were used as diplomats, and and sometimes the the role could be played by a bard. But you know how I was drawn to the fact that they were the original. They had the original diplomatic immunity. Uh, really, surprisingly, was respected almost entirely. But the the heralds were trained to go and deliver a message. You know, like uh, uh, we outnumber you five to one. You should surrender. 
And the other king wants to reply nuts, you know, as General <laughs> Collis did at the right. the bulge or, or some unprintable version thereof. Uh, well, while the Herald is, is delivering the message, he's also getting a troop count and, and, and layout because they're trained as observers and they came back and say, okay, well, the following nobles were there because I recognized the shield designs. And so mm-hmm. Malbury has thrown in with them and, and, uh, and, and so has the scope, and uh, we didn't expect that. So there's another 200 men that he's going to have. So, you know, heralds were used as spies. Anyway, so I wrote a, an interesting, I think, article for them on, on that. Uh, and uh, gosh, what else? I am uh, still working on a project with, uh, 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 with Gamehole Publishing. Uh, and uh, that I uh, can't discuss yet, and hopefully working on an open-ended project with Frog Gods uh, Publishing. Uh, so there are things in the pipeline. Partially it's a matter of, um, you know, uh, me still working a full-time job. Uh, so I, I went away from, uh, from uh, the um, chemistry and game design and, and worked for um, about... Uh, uh, three or four years as a uh, laboratory analyst in a in a in a wastewater laboratory where we basically make sure that the uh, that all of the sewer plants are performing properly and that uh, all of the industrial dischargers aren't uh, doing too much to the water. But they found out that I knew more about uh, computers than their computer guy did. And so I got into being a programmer analyst, and now I've been a systems analyst for a few years uh, for Jefferson County. And uh, so I do, uh, I run, a, I administrate a couple of the financial and, and uh, um, minute programs where you record the resolutions and contracts and have all of the uh, comments available for for watchdogs and the public to review so that you can have, you know, no more, well, this person, this commissioner secretly approved this contract. Now, if he approved it, we've got a record of it. You know, he had to, had to sign off on it. Well, well, I'm very familiar with that. I work in county government as well. So right. I, I, that's right. We are, so, we are the uns, unsung <laughs> heroes that keep the infrastructure going. That's uh, All yes. right. uh, I know we have to let out where we do. Real quick, do you ever play Kingmaker? I, I do. I played it, gosh, a long time ago uh, in the original board game version of it. Uh, you may have recognized some of my, my references being from Kingmaker. Uh, I, thought, I thought I heard something that was, yes, from Kingmaker. Uh, I also got to play at some of the early uh, 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 Gen Cons. Uh, there was a giant Kingmaker board made out of wood uh, that, uh, that uh, someone had built, and that was uh, a ton of fun to play. Uh, so yes, uh, I played that. The the bad thing about that game was there were times when it could go on forever if you if yes. you you know because you couldn't actually wipe somebody out. They could always restart and. But anyway. you know, if you, if you think about it, you know what was nice about Kingmaker was it had that randomness to it. Whereas so many of the war games, they're really. I mean, I know you had a die six, but Kingmaker added this wonderful randomness to it. That I, what appeals to me about D and D is that wonderful randomness too. So, well, and Kingmaker also had the the beautiful visuals of all of the the coats of arms of the the players, and uh, you those of us 
you know, colonials get to learn a little bit about English history uh, that we didn't uh, follow or didn't know as well. Well, that is a badge of honor for us because we, we are known by our inter- international fans of being completely ignorant. So that's, uh, they give us plenty of opportunities to be educated. And, and what we, did, we probably don't have time to talk about, but is, well, you, you, also, you worked on the folio edition of Greyhawk, if I recall correctly. I, I was the editor of World of Greyhawk, which, which uh, was so long a project that I started naming it the Endless World of Greyhawk. <laughs> uh, and since it continues now, it, it still could be. But yes, um, the... Um, you know, yep. Uh, he wrote the foreword. I did. I did write the the foreword, uh, and uh, as several people have pointed out, it was dated about a year or so before it actually came out. At that point, Gary was getting overwhelmed with his own writing commitments, and you know, I would beg him for a, a new chapter or a new uh, a people on the the you know Baclunish uh, people or or something to finish that up and. It might be a month or so, and I would get two pages. And I'd go in and say, this is great. I've got one question about this. I need, you know, ten more pages on them, Gary. And he would say, I'll get to it when I can. And and so it was drips and drags on that project for a long time. Uh, but uh, we had uh, wonderful people working on it. Uh, Darlene designed the map. Um uh, Dave Sutherland did most of the uh, coats of arms you see around the, the cover there. Um, it was uh, it was it was very cool, and of course, this was the first really large, really connected map uh, uh, world setting uh, that had um, the the countries were different. There was one of them was a you know it was called the theocracy of the pale. Right. Uh, and one one country was a majocracy, um, you know. So it brought the concepts of they're not your world shouldn't be ten cookie cutter kingdoms, each ruled by a king and the same size army and the same number of, of clerics and wizards. Some of the countries are going to be more favorable to certain alignments in certain classes. Um, this was a different concept for a lot of beginning dms so very useful i think oh and, and it, you know just before you came on the reason we're a couple minutes late is carlos lysing our good friend who's a huge greyhawk uh not even officially i don't know but keeper of greyhawk would be he's because it's 1980 he's do, giving us a hex crawl where we had we made up characters and we're basically taking the uh, poor man's guide through through greyhawk and you know to a level we go oh i don't really, I guess I don't really know anything about Greyhawk, so it's been it's been a lot of a lot of fun learning at and still to this day, so many websites people have instantiated their own versions of it. There's the official canon, then there's people taking it. So again, back to I, I don't think anyone cares what I did as a computer programmer in 1980 something when I was 40 <laughs> years ago. But the works that you've done are are still inspiring um, thousands of people throughout the world. So again, thank you for that. Yes, thank you very much. Now we we do have a slight request, or at least something for you to ponder. You don't have to uh, uh, commit to it now. But we are uh, we do have a small little convention here in Orlando, Florida, in October. And um, actually, Carlos is coming down and a couple other folks. And we had our first annual convention, our first 
convention in October last year. <laughs> Went pretty well. We were part of a Crucible, uh, which is a miniature wargaming convention. They have an RPG thing. So if this is something you're interested in, we would love to at least put that seed in your mind, if that's an opportunity, um, to see and, and what you'd be willing to do, maybe even work on a module. We have an official module that Carlos wrote the last time. I'm sure if you had an opportunity to work with uh, Alan, that would be great. So again, no commitment now, but if that's something you're at least partially interested in, we would love to talk to you further about that. Yeah. And, I'll, and we, I'll, I'll have my people talk to your people. Okay, well, you we it. are the people. So, and, and, and the good news is we do have patrons. That's right. That's right. So this would this would not be a gratis thing. We would love we would to. Never, we would never. We would never expect that. We course. would. We would want to invite you down and um, uh, be our guest here uh, as part of that. So if that's something that works with your schedule, we'll send the information. Uh, we would love for to have you here. And, and we only run an old school uh, ad- adventure. So we do Top Secret, Call of Cthulhu, Paranoia, uh, Paranoia those those type of games, and and D and D. All right, good. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. That sounds intriguing. Fantastic, wonderful, and and you know you get this. Oh, everyone gets to pray, pay homage to the rat in Orlando. You know that's the other thing. <laughs> that's to the to the to that's the your thing. to the rodent god. Right. So, um, thank you so much uh, for your for your time. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, it's been fun, and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you guys again. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Okay, if you have anything else coming up, um, uh, actually, before we do, we usually roll a D10. Do you have oh. a D10 near you? Oh, uh, no, I didn't. I wasn't prepared for that. That's okay. okay. We apologize. We have I our. I can, I can do it on my phone, though. Okay, so roll a D10. This is how well the uh, event today's session went. Yes, yeah, the rating. That's right. We're rating. The dice don't lie. May the phone may. The phone. Okay. The phone app says. Nine. Nine. Hey. Yeah, that's wonderful. Clearly. Nine out of ten. Wow. Outstanding. Okay. That's 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 I, I, I way would, good. I would agree with that. We, we were the we were the minus one. That's right. Minus one for a, <laughs> host. a little better interviews. It would have been a ten. It would have been a ten. So, <laughs> right. um, so we are again. We're on YouTube. We're on Twitter. Our website is GrogCon because that's the convention that we do. We're on iTunes. Uh, Google Play, iHeartRadio. So please, if you like this, if you have questions for Alan, you can either... Uh, on social media, where, how do people get to you on social media if they want to reach out to you, Alan? Uh, I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I don't look at it. I don't post anything, uh, so it'll be hard to get me there. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm findable on Facebook, uh, uh, A-L-L-E-N, uh, H-A-M-M-A-C-K, and... If I look at your request and, and think you're a real person uh, based on, on what I can see, I'll, I'll accept it soon. Well, well wonderful. So uh, I'm James. I'm Dan. And that was Alan. And we want to thank everyone for uh, listening to us on Grog Talk. Take care. Okay, take thank care. You. Have thank a good game you. tonight. Thank you. You're welcome. This is Big Publishing Company Production. All rights reserved.